Good afternoon, everybody. This is Scott Lease here with my good friend Richard Harris, and welcome to another edition of the Surf and Sales podcast. We are talking today with a woman named Rocky Voria, who is the director of IBM Global Digital Sales Development, which is close to the longest title that we've had on the show so far. We're really excited to talk to her because neither Richard or I know anything about IBM or Microsoft or the worlds that she has played in over the last decade. So yeah. we're ready to learn. Welcome to the show, Rocky. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah. So yeah. real quick, just got to give the shout out to our sponsor of Lead 411 if you're looking for intent data. Although uh, we'll be interested to see if you can tell us about Watson and what they're doing for lead generation. But uh, Lead 411 is an amazing tool. They've got a plugin that goes right into your browser, works with LinkedIn and lets you get notified about things like job changes and other exciting stuff about your potential prospects. So please check out Lead 411. So, all right, go ahead, Scott. So tell everybody out there listening what your job title means and what you do and what you're selling and what the sales cycle is like and just give people some context for uh, your background. Absolutely. So I manage a global team that's responsible for the strategy, implementation, and revenue of the digital sales development function, as you mentioned. So we have a few hundred digital development reps and business development reps who are really focused on client engagement, lead progression, and closure of select deals. They're aligned to various business units at IBM. So they're aligned by solution set and offering. We basically cover the entire portfolio. Um, and yeah, I mean, basically we are kind of the first line of communication that a customer will ever have with IBM. So we do a lot of the front end prospecting. Anytime a client comes in through our live chat channels on IBM.com, marketing web pages, things like that, it's typically my team who's catching those chats and qualifying those deals and helping to progress and nurture and ideally close them. Um, so that's a little bit about what I do at IBM, but then previously I was at Microsoft. So I've been at IBM for about 15 months now, just under a year and a half. When I was at Microsoft, I had a variety of different roles across sales, business development, financing. But the last job I had there was I helped them to build their digital sales team. So I was the chief of staff to the corporate vice president for the worldwide inside sales team. It was a new team the company had invested in. So I was one of the first employees. We hired about 2,000 people in under three years. So it was really massive growth. Um, and I'm very passionate, I guess, about the field of digital sales and accelerating the transformation of sales organizations and also about um, getting more women into sales and diverse candidates in sales in general. I have the pleasure of co-chairing the Women at IBM group in the New York City region and um, have written some articles and spoken about this topic. So excited to jump into the discussion today and get into some meaty topics. So I gotta. So I'm gonna go back, and and Scott and I have this challenge, um, is that we don't understand big corporate lingo, like <laughs> whether it's Oracle or Microsoft or Salesforce or IBM. So we hear things like digital development, digital sales transformation, like dumb it down for us, right? Like Scott went to ASU, I went to U of A, so we both have too much fun in the sun. So <laughs> help us understand. Hey, both good schools. Yeah. No, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a lot of corporate jargon. There's a lot of buzzwords people like to use around digital transformation and leveraging artificial intelligence and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, at a high level, a lot of core companies, big or small, they have kind of a sales development type of function. So at IBM, that's the one that I lead here. 
And usually it's kind of the front end of the sales cycle. So a digital development rep, for example, at IBM, they're focused on inbound. So anytime a client does something, so maybe they'll go to a webinar, go to a live event, or participate in a trial, download a white paper, all of those things get scored using AI. And when the time is right, we'll have a digital development rep for my team reach out to the client and talk to them about their engagement with IBM and all the things that they might be considering for their business. And then similarly, we have business development reps, but instead of working on the inbound channels, they do outbound prospecting. So kind of typical role, I guess, uh, reaching out to white space, cross sell, upsell, et cetera. So that's kind of how we split the team. Every company is a little bit different, but for us, we recently moved to a model um, with a transformation that I just led and kicked this off in January where we've kind of split the role because we did a lot of work to really understand kind of what's working out there in the industry. And one of the things that really caught my eye was the benefits of inbound and outbound teams. And so previously when I came to IBM, it was just one role. It was the digital development rep and then we split it in January. And I think, you know, the goal is to kind of help build confidence of skill because they are such different um, sales motions. It's really different to be able to answer any question that comes through on a live chat versus actually kind of being the hunter, so to speak, that everybody calls a business development rep. So we've seen some success so far, but have recently moved into this model. Richard, Richard, hold on a second. I got to go back to Rocky's comment about hiring 2,000 people in three years. For those of you doing math at home, and they're probably better than me, but I was just doing some napkin math in my head. That's like two people per day. That's crazy. Yeah. When you think about that. Think about what was the, what, what sea of resumes did you have to part in order to find, you know, the right hires to hire 2000 people in, in three years? Hiring two people a day is something that most people who've spent time in a, in a, in a hiring manager kind of position can't fathom. So I would love to hear more about how you I went. could write an entire case study about that experience. You should write an entire case study about it. There would be a lot of people would purchase that. Well, maybe I got to monetize, I guess. Um, no, but I think you're absolutely right. So it was an interesting situation because, I mean, we were under pressure to hire very quickly. Um, and we, we didn't want to sacrifice a few things, though, like diversity and getting the right source of candidates versus just a bunch of people with sales development types of experience, digital sales experience, because you want to obviously have diversity of background, thought, et cetera. Um, so in general, I mean, basically, it was a tough market because most of the digital sales centers that we were sourcing for were in very competitive markets, like Dublin, as an example. I mean, pretty much every tech company has a huge inside sales or digital sales presence in Dublin um, or places like Dallas as an example. So I think um, in general, we ended up hiring in waves actually because it is very difficult to bring on two people every day as you just described. And so we wanted to kind of create co cohorts where uh, you know, we sort of had maybe two uh, weeks a month where on a Monday you would start with your cohort of people. You were kind of in a class that was somewhat of a collegiate environment, although it wasn't necessarily college students that we were hiring. It was a good mix of people across the globe. But what was nice about that is you were sort of part of these onboarding classes. You were learning together. You were getting on the phones together. Um, and because of that, it was sort of more of a buddy system. But to answer your question about how to do it, 
Um, it kind of varies. I mean, it depends on what you're looking for, but I think the good thing about what we did is that we didn't have a specific profile that we were boxing ourselves into. We really took the time and effort to look at some non-traditional sources. And I found now through that experience that some of the best sales hires I've ever made are people who don't have the traditional background. So military, as an example, like we have seen so much success with people who came from a military background. They uh, know a lot about relentlessness, resilience, camaraderie, teaming, influencing, all of those types of things that would make you a really great fit for sales. Um, similarly, have hired people from retail stores who are just, you know, really good at doing what they do in retail stores and things like that. So um, I think part of it is just casting a wide net, maybe relaxing some of the traditional things that you would typically put on a job description, maybe around a college degree or certain years of experience. And then, of course, I mean, if you want to attract diverse candidates and women in particular, um, we had to really be thoughtful about that because we had a goal to bring on half of the team um, as women. And we didn't get there in every single geography, but in many we actually did. And it sometimes took longer, but it, it required us to really redline the job descriptions. I mean, if you look at some of the sales job descriptions in the industry today, you still see a lot of masculine, aggressive language about how they're looking for killer sellers, hunters, competitive, aggressive, all of that stuff that verbiage might not be as inclusive or attractive to a woman seller as an example. So I think we had to really start at the beginning of the recruiting process and, and the cycle there to make sure that our entire process was inclusive and that we were casting a wide net. Yeah, the, the couple of pieces that I hope everybody listening to pays attention specifically to is, is um, hiring in cohorts rather than just bringing in people onesies, twosies at a time. And then kind of getting rid of the traditional backgrounds and looking for people from much more diverse subset in terms of um, what they've been through, like you mentioned, the military and diverse candidates and women in sales and, and that kind of thing. You know, marrying those two strategies together is, is something that startups, I feel like in particular, have traditionally been better at and more effective at than larger companies like a Microsoft or an, I, or an IBM. So it's encouraging to me to hear you talk about this coming from IBM and your background at Microsoft. It makes me think that, uh, you know, there's a little bit of a, might be slow, but maybe there's some sweeping change kind of coming. That's, that's good, to, good to know. I have a question because I've been harping on this for about, for a while now, but, but particularly the last month, but how hard at IBM was it to get them to take college degree required off the job description? Well, so at IBM, actually, it actually, the requirements depend on the specific geography and the location. Some of that was done prior to me getting here. Okay. So I can't exactly answer that question. For my time at Microsoft, um, it actually wasn't as hard as you think. I mean, I think people are very progressive. They understand that the best candidates might not have had the same access, uh, especially with all of the things that we're seeing in the world today. People are just being a little bit more progressive and understanding of the fact that if you want to get certain people in the door, you got to start somewhere. So I, you know, I would encourage people, if you work at corporations or startups who are pretty regimented about the types of background and experiences that they're looking for, 
um, take a look out there in the industry. And, and there's a lot of articles out there about the benefits of relaxing some of those things and, and the ability to bring on a diverse set of people and everything. And I'm not just talking about, um, you know, diversity of background from a cultural perspective, but diversity of age, perspective, experience. I mean, maybe you don't want somebody from technology sales. Maybe you want somebody who has sold something completely different, who has seen success. Or, um, you know, for me, all I look for is a strong track record of success. It could be in anything. So if you are- yeah, what are those, those, those non-traditional sales? Like this is, this is the stuff we love to talk about. Yeah. Um, and you'll see things differently than I would or Scott. Um, even, you know, even as a woman, you probably see things differently than I would. What are the things you look for as a strong track record of success? For me, it's pretty simple. I mean, it's just um, a consistent track record of success. So whatever it was in your background, whether it was sports or dance or whatever it might have been, it doesn't need to be sales or even business related at all. If you're a college kid applying for your very first job, I understand you might not have experience. But was there something in your life that you committed to for a long period of time where you wanted to be the best at it? So if you wanted to be a dancer or whatever it might be, were you winning awards? Were you participating in competitions? Did you show um, the ability to actually commit to something and to have that stamina? I think that's what's most important to me. Um, and a lot of times I think people sometimes overlook working moms as an example, or single moms, or people trying to get back into the workforce. But those are some of the people who know how to influence, they know how to prioritize time, they know how to nurture, connect with people, all of those things. So I think it's just about being open-minded. And the problem is we don't do enough, a good enough job today in the industry about showcasing those success stories. And so I think, um, you know, the more we can get those stories out there, whether it's podcasts like these or other things like that. I think it'll just make people be a little bit more open-minded about the possibilities. What, I got one more question for you. What do you think it would take, and I'm curious to your opinion, what do you think it would take to get IBM to put on a sales job description, particularly for this sort of the, the roles you're, you're coaching to where they're oftentimes first time in sales, to just say high school diploma required versus taking mm -hmm. out the college in addition to taking out college? Um, well, I, you know, honestly, I'd have to double check, but I think we already do that today. Let's so, do it. Yeah. So it kind of depends on the location. Don't quote me. I don't want to go to IBM jail if I'm misrepresenting anything. Oh, we're going to ask I, about IBM jail. Yeah. <laughs> but I have seen, um, I have seen certain job descriptions where things are getting a little bit more relaxed. So it, it obviously it depends great. on the part of the company. Um, but in general, I mean, I, I just, I kind of assume at this point, high school degree required, but for college degree, I think there's a lot of different ways to kind of get that education. So it just depends. Yeah. I don't know anybody who needs a college degree to be in sales, even, even at six and seven figure deals. Um, cause it's a learned skill that's not taught in college. <laughs> like, what is the college degree going to do for me? Um, They're starting to now as we've yeah. had a Finally, finally, sales professors on on the show and, and whatnot. What well, um, I want to shift a little bit. Um, and by all means, we'll say it now, but say it later. If people are interested in coming to work for IBM, where do they even go? Because I I could be like, oh my god, I'll go to the IBM website and I could get lost, right? So we'll tell them a couple of times, but since we're talking about it, we might as well say it now. 
Good question. Yeah, I think uh, navigating the IBM abyss can be challenging. I mean, we have almost 400,000 employees all over the world. So I would suggest, I mean, of course, you can apply on our IBM.com careers website. But the reality is, I mean, I think in this day and age, um, obviously referrals make a huge difference. So you are more than welcome to reach out to me personally um, or leverage your network. I mean, go on to LinkedIn, see who you know, who might be from IBM and also do your homework. I think there are a lot of people who kind of send me generic things that you could replace the IBM with basically any other company. But what I'm looking for is kind of what, what excites you about IBM? Is there anything that we're doing in the AI space or, or things like that um, that are really exciting you, maybe the Red Hat acquisition and the journey to cloud and all of that. So make sure you personalize it a little bit, do your homework, but definitely reach out to people in your network and leverage LinkedIn. Let's, let's talk about that for a second because you've been pretty active on LinkedIn. You've written all sorts of content and outspoken about a lot of things. How is that, how do you manage the, how do you manage your voice and, and the things you're passionate about and creating that content with having to do it under the banner of working for a big company that sometimes frowns upon these things? Well, for me, I think I've been lucky because I guess I work at a company whose values really deeply align with my own. And it's one of the reasons why I came here. And so um, specifically around the diversity and inclusion space. I mean, IBM has been a huge pioneer in this space for over a century, and they were one of the first people who really um, hired minorities even long before civil rights and had women VPs that were 27 years old back in the 70s when that was never heard of. So I think um, IBM, like in general, anytime I talk about anything related to that, um, it's actually typically me praising the company that I'm coming from. And so I think you know, I think a lot of times people are a little bit scared. You obviously need to make sure that you're representing the company that you work for on your Twitter and things like that. You should say things like rep views represent my own, not my own company, things like that. But I think we've got to get people away from the mindset of shying away from talking about things that are personal or tying it to their work. Um, obviously, it would be a very different story if I hated the company that I was working for and was publishing all kinds of things about it. But because typically everything that I post about is positive and things that we're doing and things that we're working on, um, I think it's actually nothing but goodness. Because nowadays, I mean, you want to stay relevant, you want to stay competitive, and especially as you're thinking about recruiting people, that's kind of a requirement now. Like people want to work for a company that cares about social justice and that's moving the needle in certain spaces. And obviously that's changing the world and things like that. So the more they can have representatives and executives sort of talking the talk and walking the walk, it's, it's nothing but goodness for the company. What are the questions that, that job seekers should be asking to vet a company properly in terms of their, you know, DNI, um, you know, program and, and their stance on everything. I, we've been getting this question quite a bit. Like, well, how do you know? How do you know somebody is not just giving you lip service and actually does what they say they're going to do and is actually inclusive? What, what advice do you have for job seekers out there to, to vet opportunities and companies appropriately? Well, so you've got to ask a lot of questions, but then in the end, you sort of have to take a leap of faith because I think pretty much every company at this point, there's always going to have some sort of corporate social responsibility page on their website, or they're going to talk about all the things that they're doing. But it's up to you as you're going through the recruiting process to really validate some of those things. And 
Um, I think it's okay to like really roll up your sleeves and, and ask. Um, don't be afraid. You're interviewing them just as much as they're interviewing you. And so when I was interviewing with IBM or having, you know, kind of the informal conversations, I asked a lot and I said, you know, I'm the co-chair of women at Microsoft globally. It's something that's incredibly important to me. What is your business resource group look like for women at IBM? What are the actual things you guys are doing? Do you have different work streams? What are they? Um, how do your diversity numbers look? Do you share those publicly? Um, are there business requirements for different executives to have to move the needle in these spaces? Things like that. So I think it's okay to kind of ask about what the community aspect is like, what the leadership is doing on those types of fronts. Um, and then also just in general, I mean, not necessarily just about corporate social responsibility types of things, but really want to get a sense of what the actual day-to-day -day job is like. So I think it's okay if you get far enough in the process to say, could I maybe talk to someone who's currently in the role or maybe shadow them for an hour or whatever it might be. Um, changing companies, especially in this environment, it's a big decision. So I think the more homework you can do to really understand what the actual employee experience is like, the better. I love what you said. First of all, thank you for giving tactics, right? Like that's the best thing on, on any podcast is ask these five kinds of questions. You, you mentioned a question that I thought was, that I've never heard, uh, which was, you know, what are your executives corporate responsibilities with regards to diversity or something like that? Right. Yeah. So in your mind, without sort of throwing anybody under the bus, what's a good answer versus a bad answer? And who do you ask it to? Do I ask it to you as my line manager that I'm interviewing with? Do I ask it of the HR person? Because it's a great question is like, how are you, how are you really making this happen? So I personally asked it to everybody I spoke with. Um, and I spoke with HR, I spoke with different executives, I spoke with the person who's now my boss, I spoke with the person who's now our CMO, et cetera. So basically anyone I talk to, I mean, I just ask them, male or female, because it is something that's so, so important to me. Um, and like I said, it's one of the reasons I came here because everybody walked the walk and talked the talk. Like it's as if they all had this canned response, but none of them actually work with each other. They're in completely different business divisions. And that was really um, inspiring to me to see that like clearly there is this level of understanding and shared vision across the company, regardless of who I was talking to. There were some people who had been at the company for three years, one person who had been there for 41 years, and, and they still had kind of a shared belief. So, yeah, I mean, I would just ask everybody. I mean, HR is obviously the easiest person to get some of the more specifics from around, um, you know, as an executive coming in, am I going to be gold against certain things or as somebody coming in, um, what are the expectations, I guess, if I were to hire a team, what does that look like? But um, in general, I actually find it more insightful asking people who aren't from HR what the everyday experience is like um, just to get a better sense. You, you wrote not too long ago, a, uh, a wonderful article for Forbes talking about why women should consider a role in sales without regurgitating the whole article or testing your, your memory um, of what you wrote about. Can you, can you kind of talk about, you know, the, the couple main takeaways? Like what are, what are the reasons that you're, you wrote that article and what are the reasons why women should consider roles in sales? Yes, absolutely. It's my favorite topic, as you can probably tell. 
Um, I mean, I, so I've also been really passionate about this topic because I actually myself fell into sales. And so we can talk about that a little bit later, but I had a lot of preconceived notions about the profession being really masculine, competitive, aggressive. I just never necessarily considered myself um, being a seller. So I think there's just a lot of um, bad connotations with sales, unfortunately, today. So we have to continue to make strides on that front. But um, I have found it to be an incredibly worthwhile career. And you hear the New York City in the background here. So bear with me. But um, I think, you know, there's a few different reasons why I always recommend women consider roles. The first one um, is the most basic. It's that you'll develop tangible skills. I mean, I think sales is a great place to build a variety of different skills, both tangible, soft. I mean, obviously, you have to be able to have empathy for a customer. You develop confidence, grit, being able to persuade people, influence them. Those are very critical skills, regardless of what you want to do in, in the long run. And being able to communicate um, is incredibly helpful. And I think regardless of where you are in any company or what you do, like every day you are selling. And I know people don't like to think about it that way, but if you're trying to convince someone to go on a vacation or a date with you or whatever it might be, like that's sales. Um, and I have a sister, she's a doctor. I even tell her that she's in sales. Like she's helping to make sure that her parent patients understand all of their different options. Um, she's displaying empathy. She has to communicate effectively and she has to give them all the information that they need to be able to make their final decision in the end. Like she, also, have, she would yeah. also probably tell you, she would also probably tell you that she has to sell patients on doing what is in their own best interest. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I think everyone's selling. And so it's so important for women, especially to learn how to sell and learn how to sell well. It's a great thing to have in your back pocket. But the other thing I tell women is that it's just such a transferable and marketable skill. I mean, sales can really set you up to do anything. And I think a lot of people in general are typically looking for people with a sales background, especially marketing, business development. I mean, when you have experience actually talking to clients, understanding their needs, what's resonating in the market, I mean, that could help you um, from a financial perspective, from a marketing perspective, operations, you name it. So even if you hate sales, I always tell women, just try it because you'll learn some tangible skills and then it'll set you up to do to do something else maybe after. Um, and then also, I mean, I think it's it's a good lifestyle, too. So um, in general, I mean, I think sales gives you a lot of flexibility, which is great. Um, and you can also make good money. It can be very lucrative. I mean, you need to find out from the given company what the compensation structure and model looks like and see if it makes sense for you. But um, there was actually a study recently, Flex Jobs, they published that um, the most top family-friendly career offering a flexible lifestyle balanced with the amount of money you make is actually an account executive. And they looked across, really? yeah, they looked across different industries and it was top of the list. They said the median annual salary is just shy of $100,000. And with technology and especially now in this pandemic environment, you can do your job from home. So it was listed as number one. So those are some of the reasons why yeah. I try to persuade women, that's, I guess. That's good to know. I, I have a question. I want to go, I want to go deep on personal. So um, just dive in on, on the family dynamics. You know, in some families, everyone's supposed to be a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. And so you have a sister who's a doctor, you're a yeah. salesperson. 
was that okay? Like, did your parents, well, are you sure you don't want to be a doctor like your sister? Like, do they still they, say that? You know, Mine you're, still you're, says that. I know you're only asking me this because I'm Indian, huh? You're like doctor, engineer, those are the traditional paths. It's got nothing to do with it, I swear. We have, I would ask, I would ask Caucasians as well, I promise. No, I, um, no, I mean, so I, my family, I come from a women of, uh, family of very strong women. So I grew up with a single mom, two older sisters. They were seven and 10 years older than me. So believe it or not, I'm the baby of the family. Um, and you know, that's probably not surprising why I'm so passionate about advancing women in business, seeing my mom's personal story, going from an Indian immigrant to starting her own company and, and doing all these things and raising me and my sisters alone. So it kind of showed me that women can do anything. We just have to open the right doors for them. And there are still a lot of systemic barriers that we need to fix as corporations and companies and all of that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, that's a little bit about my family. My oldest sister, as I mentioned, is a doctor. My middle sister is in finance. She works for an oil and gas company. And then I work at a tech company and sales has been kind of the common thread throughout my career. So we're all doing very different things. I think, um, from a young age, my family knew I would go into business even before I did, and they always thought I would go into sales, believe it or not. Why, but, why would they Why would they say that? This, these are great stories. Uh, like, Where did that passion for sales come from? For I didn't have a passion for sales. That's the or funny thing. Or passion for business. Yeah, I. so I guess I was always business-minded. So um, I will tell you the story of my little red wagon lemonade stand. Um, so when I was young, like first and second grade, I had a lemonade stand in my neighborhood and every summer I would like set up my lemonade stand and every kid would basically do the same thing. They would pick a corner and they'd have their stand. But what I did, I think it was like maybe seven years old, I decided to put my um, stand on my little red wagon. And I said, instead of being in one place, I'm gonna take my wagon around with me and I'm gonna strategically park myself in places of the neighborhood where there were construction workers working on houses. And I said, I'm gonna stay here and I know these guys are working in the hot sun, they're probably thirsty and so they're, I'm gonna optimize my profits if I do it this way. And I remember I would come home at the end of the day with like all of this money and I would obviously compare it to some of my friends in the neighborhood. And my mom was like, well, where did you come up with this idea? And I was like, I don't know, I just thought it made sense. And so from a young age, they would kind of joke that I always sort of had this sales-minded background in my blood even before I knew it, I guess. When did you know you liked sales though? Or when did you fall in? Because, you know, like so many of us, we didn't really start traditionally in sales. We didn't know we were going to be there. Uh, I'm probably more the outlier who kind of did. But when did you go, oh my God, this is it. This is for me. Um, when I started in my first sales job. So right I'll give you a little bit of background. Right away? Wow. I did. Yeah. So basically, I mean, I, I uh, went straight from undergrad to graduate school. And then when I was at graduate school, I ended up going to a Microsoft recruiting event. So I wasn't necessarily targeting Microsoft per se. I really liked technology. I knew I wanted to go into business. I basically wanted to, to work at a company that was changing the world. And I went to the Microsoft recruiting event and I was just totally blown away by the scope of the company and all of that. And so I decided to apply 
But when I applied, I actually applied for a marketing position because I had had some, you know, college internships where I'd worked at advertising agencies and things like that. So I thought it would make the most sense. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I knew I liked business, but I wasn't sure if it was like operations or finance or whatever it might be. So um, I ended up applying for a marketing role and it was actually the recruiter from Microsoft who put me in the queue for sales. And I remember having a conversation with her and she said, you know, have you ever considered sales? You have a strong track record of success. You communicate well, you listen intently. All of those things would make you a really great fit for sales. And I think at the time I had like a visceral reaction and I was like, oh my God, I would never go into sales. It's so masculine. Definitely not for me. I don't have the personality for it. Way too competitive. Um, and I just kind of ultimately went with it because she was, she was really pushing me to be more open-minded and considerate. And so I was like, you know what, whatever, let's just go for it and see how it goes. And I ended up landing my first job at the company as a licensing sales specialist. I had no idea what that was. It was um, about as unsexy as it sounds. But um, I ended up loving it. Like I, first of all, was learning a lot of tangible skills. As I said, I enjoyed being in front of customers. I was learning a lot. Um, and I was also really good at it. I realized that like I, all of the things that I was nervous about ended up being strengths for me. So the fact that I do have a different style and I do ask a lot of questions and I come across as maybe more nurturing than some of my male peers who do have a bit of a more aggressive personality. We were able to tag team pretty effectively and kind of play good cop, bad cop in customer conversations. So I always try to share that with women sometimes too, because the things that we're a little bit worried about end up being strengths in sales a lot of the time. And there's a lot of studies out there. Um, Zactly recently reported that women actually outperform men in sales by 3%. There's more other stats out there very similar. So I think we're actually really good at it. And I found that to be the case too. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, when you're doing well in sales, it can be really lucrative. So I, I was really enjoying it and I never expected that. And then, you know, fast forward several years, it's kind of been the common thread throughout my career. What, um, I want to, I want to go here. So, you know, you're raised by a single mom. You have two sisters, any brothers or just the two sisters? Oh, family of girls. So, you know, I know, and I'm sure she taught you about resiliency and those kinds of things. I mean, hats off to your mom, like congrats, you know, for raising three amazing women. Say something to your mom. Let's let her listen. Is, is she still around? What do you want to say to mom? This is always a fun thing. <laughs> I guess I would just say thank you. I mean, she has sacrificed so much for us. Um, I actually just, this past Mother's Day, I published an article in Forbes. It was called Leadership Lessons from My Mother. So if anyone wants to take a look and read some of those tangible lessons that I learned from her, they can see it there. You know, give people two or three. What are two or three things? Don't, well, don't, make, don't make it too good, though, or my inbox is going to explode from my mother saying, how come you haven't written an article <laughs> about how great and wonderful your mother is? I took care of that for you, Scott. Yeah. Maybe you guys need to call your moms, huh? Thank them. <laughs> I, it, what Scott's not telling you is that for his birthday last month, I interviewed his mother, his father, and brother privately for our podcast. Oh, oh that is about so Scott for his birthday. So it was pretty awesome. I, I bought great. Scott, I think, about six months. Maybe I guess I got him about six weeks of relief, and then, you know, his mom started hounding down on him again. So 
very sweet. So, but what if it, seriously though, um, and, and to Scott's mom who listens to every episode, you know I'm kidding. I love you too. Um, but what are those two or three leadership skills that your mom taught you? Because I think it's really important to, like this is what generation, this is how you start to build generational wealth. It's not always with the money, it's with the skill set and the mindset. So what are, oh, what are those things that you could share? Well, as I mentioned in my article, there were actually three reasons, so I can give everyone a quick teaser, but one of them was just around investing in people at a young age. So, um, you know, I mean, as I mentioned, my, my dad wasn't really in the picture. There was a time where my mom was working three jobs at once, but despite that, she um, ended up starting her own company. She's an internationally recognized speaker. She was an advisor to Obama for a period of time. Like, she's just amazing. Um, but one of the things that she did and showed me at a really young age was that it's still important to kind of give back and contribute to society. And so even when she was working a lot, she still found time to be part of different economic boards and commissions and cultural commissions, things like that. And so when I was young, I mean, as I mentioned, my sisters were older, so they went to college even when I was pretty young. So my mom would take me to all of her meetings with her and basically like every day after school i would go with her and at the time i hated it i mean i was like the kid in the corner eating my mcdonald's happy meal and playing in my coloring book but the reality is like i look back on that time and i realize it was some of the most experiential learning and training i've ever received and being able to see that at a young age and also i mean she was in pretty male-dominated environments pretty much everywhere we went um, she kind of showed me how to negotiate and persuade and connect with people across all different levels in support of different goals. And so I think um, the more people can expose their children to that at a young age, I don't, I'm not married yet, don't have kids myself, hopefully will be one day, but that's definitely one of the things that I'll take with me. And I think this pandemic is helping with that because previously people felt like they had to have separation of work and life. And now you just can't. And so I think people are more open to celebrating that, to showing their kids on video, to being open about the fact that they're struggling with, you know, kids sitting right next to them, trying to figure out how to do their online homework, all that kind of stuff. And when you're sitting in a room with a kid, even if they're coloring and eating their McDonald's the way that I was, they're still listening and they're still absorbing. So I think it's just a, a good way to give exposure. Um, and then the second one I would say is, just kind of around relationships. So in my article, I had mentioned that she showed me that relationships are the true currency. Um, and she just always did a really great job of showing me how powerful they can be. And I, I had given a story of how um, one day, I remember we were like at the store and she saw these two young Indian boys who were in Colorado where we lived for their schooling and she struck up a conversation with them like she does with basically everybody, Uber drivers, et cetera. And she was talking to them and- um, That's they my mom too. So. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas we're like, don't talk to me. I'll give you five stars if you're quiet the whole time. <laughs> um, but yeah, she, they mentioned like, you know, they were away from India for the first time. They missed their mother's home cooked food. So she like randomly invited them over for dinner that night over time, they sort of became her like adopted sons that she never had um, for years. And then eventually she started her own company and she, we didn't even know this about the kids, but eventually we found out that one of the, 
the guise was actually the son of a very prominent um, Indian businessman. And when she started her consulting firm, um, it was actually that family that, that helped her close her first U.S.-India trade deal. And the deal was basically closed with a handshake. Um, you know, not a ton of like paperwork, lawyers, et cetera, but it was largely due to the network that she built over several years. And I think just seeing that her success kind of started humbly from social and familial relationships showed me that you never know when like, you know, the homesick kid at a store is going to become an important business person for you down the line. And so that's why it's just good to kind of be open-minded, treat everybody with respect and make sure you maintain those relationships versus having one-offs. That's really great. I, I like saying that you never know who you're going to be able to help and you never know who might be able to help you. Yeah. So you might as well try to, you know, be open to having conversations with anybody and, and everybody. That's, that's really good. I, I wish we had more time because I really want to know about your mom and her work with Obama. My Richard and I both went yes. like, what? Yeah, just we're like, wait, casually, we're just, like we're casually just dropped that. Just like casually dropped that in there. Oh, by the way, yeah, my mom worked with Obama. What? Uh, but we're 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 getting to the end of the show here, and um, we like to to take some time and say to our guests, how can we be helpful to you? Is there cause you want to promote? You're passionate about? Do you have any questions for us? What can we do to support you and and what you're working on? Well, I think the biggest form of support that you two can provide is your male allyship, right? So I think it's great that you are getting more women on this podcast and showing, showcasing more women in the industry. But I think, you know, the reality is the only way we're going to make progress and incremental progress in closing the gap in sales. And just, you know, by the way, for those of you who don't know, it is a very real issue. I know we don't hear much about it. We hear so much about getting more women into STEM, but we rarely hear about women in sales, even though um, CEB Global actually says sales is the second largest gender equity gap across all business functions after supply chain. Only one in five vice presidents of sales are women. There's a lot of studies out there, but um, one recent one says that 39% of people in sales are women. The higher up you get, the worse it is. That percentage has actually barely increased by only 3% over the past decade. So I think, you know, ultimately there are companies and people who are really passionate about fighting this fight, but the reality is we're not going to get anywhere if A, we don't draw attention to the fact that this is an issue and B, we don't have the support and advocacy and championing of men like yourself being part of the conversation. So my ask of you, I guess, through your community that you guys have built, which is amazing, is to continue shedding light on this topic and then also, you know, pushing some of the people who do join your podcast and that you work with to really commit to action. Um, how, how are you going to treat this like a business performance KPI, just like everything else in sales? And how are you going to have metrics and goals and regular reviews and actually make sure that you, you have some real tangible goals to make a difference here? Yeah, that's great. You're, you're one of those easy guests. Like we always get off and we go like, wow, we don't have to do a lot of talking. We can ask a question and deep, great, meaningful answers. So thank you for coming on and, by all means, we certainly want to, we we'll definitely want to have you back because I know we want to go down like six other conversation roads with you um, about leadership and sales and all this kind of stuff. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
Yeah. And thanks everybody for listening. Um, as always, we want to give a shout out to Lead 411. If you are looking for lead and intent data, please check out Lead 411. They're good friends and of course a sponsor of the show.